Today on Ag News Daily. Why is an energy company uh, wanting to get involved in agriculture or a company like Renewable Energy Group? And it really starts with Chevron's view of the future of energy is lower carbon. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell flying solo here on today's Ag News Daily podcast. Brought to you by the Farm Smart Podcast. Subscribe now at nutrientagsolutions.com slash farmsmart. And I'm guessing that those folks are at the Farm Progress show for day three today. Tanner's a little uh, tired this morning. No, I'm just kidding. He's not under the weather. He is heading back to the show to get one final day of great interviews and content and talking to folks there. So we gave him the day off. Not that you get a day off from podcasting, it seems, but nonetheless, there is a lot to talk about today when we look at the world of agriculture and news. But as we look at weather, the recent change to the weather pattern has allowed an upper level heat ridge to extend farther north since mid-August. I don't know about your neck of the woods, but here in central Iowa and where I was in Indianapolis this past couple of days. Cooler temperatures definitely hit me each morning as I left the hotel. And as I uh, walked around outside this morning, cooler temperatures here are also still persevering. But this recent change during the normal period of August 18th through the 26th, temperatures soared well above normal east of the Rockies, where we were here in the Corn Belt. And Corn Belt readings were anywhere from 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit above normal for this time of year. So I'm sure hopefully most folks are getting a little bit of reprieve from that heat. As I mentioned, we certainly are here in the Midwest, here in Iowa and Indiana. And it sounds like that's going to start to heat back up here in the coming days. Not quick bursts of heat, but rather a growing simmer. We will see some 90 degree temperature days here across the high plains early this week, but that will shift into the western plains by Labor Day. So it'll be good time to get the final grilling of the season, final pool day or whatever uh, floats your boat there for your Labor Day festivities. Could be the last warm period we see for this kind of summertime season. So moving right along here, how would you like to spend $32,000 on a block of cheese? At a recent auction, we saw the world record set for the most expensive cheese and this was a, I'm probably not going to pronounce this name of cheese correctly, I've never heard of it. The Cabrales Blue Cheese of Northern Spain earned the title of the world's now most expensive cheese after a 2.2 kilogram wheel was sold at an auction for $32,000. That equates to roughly $6,600, excuse me, $6,600 per pound. This record-breaking cheese consisted of three different types of animal species milk, cow, sheep, and goat, and was left to mature for a minimum of eight months at 44 degrees, here's the kicker, in a cave. This cave was at an altitude of 1,400 meters or 4,600 feet, and these caves are located near the Cabrales area in the Picos de Europa National Park in Spain. That must be why this cheese sold for a whopping $32,000. But 
cheese aged in a cave. Who would have thunk it? As we look at some other headlines here this morning, USDA Secretary Vilsack was at the Farm Progress Show yesterday talking about maintaining flexibility and resources at the USDA. As he spoke with reporters and other folks on the grounds, he mentioned rolling out new renewable energy funding while defending his use of federal funds to help stimulate both farm income and the rural economy. Vilsack is facing possible limits on his ability to use the Commodity Credit Corporation, which has about $30 billion in funds annually. These funds give him the latitude to use the CCC funds to help farmers market and sell commodities. And previously, we've seen these CCC funds used for things like the market facilitation payment programs. The Secretary of Agriculture has the ability to use these funds as they see fit, and so far Vilsack has used the fund to spend $3.1 billion on 141 different climate smart grants from the USDA over the past year. Now the GOP House funding bill essentially restricts USDA's ability to use that fund except for emergencies. So there has been a lot of questions lately about the you know, legal legality of the CCC fund and who really ultimately has the discretion to decide how those funds are spent. Sounds like the House here is pushing back and there might be some limitations that we see in the next farm bill. So that'll be something we're certainly watching here, but no news is hopefully good news when it comes to the next farm bill, as we've not really seen any major headlines here over the last week or so. One other headline we saw announced at this year's Farm Progress show, however, was Agco's Fent introduced a new 30-inch model, Momentum Planter. They are expanding their lineup of planters offered to farmers with a smaller 30-foot row planter. The Fent Momentum lineup now spans 30 feet to 60 feet machines with liquid and dry fertilizer systems in 12, 20, and 23 row configurations with 30 inch and 15 inch spacing respectively. But this new Momentum planter features the vertical contouring bar to follow the topography of field terrain for 52 inches of vertical planting range. I am obviously not at the Farm Progress show this week, but I'd be curious to know if that's one of the demos that's going on in the demo field this week. But in some other headlines here, a Cherokee County landowner claims that carbon dioxide pipeline company agents pressured him explicitly with the threat of eminent domain. This was testified by Richard Davis during the ongoing testimony with the Iowa Utilities Board and Summit Carbon Solutions. Tuesday opened the second week of the company's evidentiary hearing for the hazardous liquid pipeline permit application with the IUB. Davis was one of five farm owners or landowners to testify on Tuesday, and he said that a Summit land agent attempted to persuade him to sign the voluntary easements by sharing that if the company sought to force easements through eminent domain, it was likely that Davis would only be paid a fraction of what the company was going to offer him right now on the spot. He said the agent also told him the company was certain to succeed with its eminent domain requests, making him feel very pressured to sign those papers. Those easements give perpetual permission to the company to construct and permit its pipeline on land it doesn't own. And 
any summit team member who was found to have pressured landowners around the possibility of eminent domain being used will be disciplined and if such behavior continues, terminated by the company, said a spokesperson for Summit Carbon Solutions. The latest headline here coming out of Russia, Ukraine, is that Russian foreign minister has said that he will sit down with Turkish counterpart to discuss a proposal by Moscow for an alternative to the Black Sea grain deal. As they reported on yesterday, Turkey is heading to Sochi to sit down with Russian diplomats to discuss the extension or the addition of a new grain corridor agreement. And it sounds like now Russian foreign minister has agreed to sit down with them to discuss an alternative deal, but it's their proposal. Under the plan, Russia would send a million tons of grain to Turkey at a discounted price with financial support from Qatar to be processed in Turkey and sent to countries most in need. So they said they're going to be the ones stepping in to help with some of the humanitarian efforts. And really, they're leaving Ukraine out of this proposal that it sounds like Moscow is backing. But I think that does it for today's quick headlines aside from the markets. As we look at the overnights here, we're a little before closing of the overnights as we head into opening session. Currently, September corn is up three and a quarter cent at 465. Dece new crop corn up two and a half at 483 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, we're seeing September soy beans down a penny and a half at 13.79 and three quarters. Nove beans up a penny at 13.87 and three quarters. Meal today also lower on the board. Hard red winter wheat today down two and three quarters cents in the September contract at 7.16 and a half. Spring wheat in the September contract down eight and a quarter at 7.40 and a half. And September Chicago wheat down six and three quarters cents at 5.70. Livestock and where they ended for today, excuse me, where they ended yesterday, October live cattle shed a dollar forty-two and a half at one eighty oh five. September feeder cattle down a dollar forty at two fifty-two sixty-two and a half, and October lean hogs added two dollars eighty-seven and a half cents at eighty-three sixty. For today's conversation, Tanner has gotten some great interviews at the Farm Progress Show. So let's turn it over to his conversation today to chat with Chevron REG. With the Farm Smart podcast, we're not just talking change, we're making change together. Farm Smart is where sustainability meets opportunity. We're helping growers leverage sustainable practices and products to record positive environmental impacts and provide new revenue streams. Tune in to learn more about sustainable ag and the opportunities and incentives that are enabling us to get to the future faster. Get the Farm Smart podcast on your favorite streaming platform or at nutrientactsolutions.com slash farmsmart. Pleased to be sitting here across the, uh, what do you call this, a podium, a desk? This is kind of a unique setup here at uh, Farm or, Progress Show. Or a grain bin, maybe. A grain <laughs> bin, there you go. <laughs> Something like that, right? I love that. We got <laughs> Kevin Lukey here, President Chevron Renewable Energy Group, sitting here at Farm Progress Show, here to learn a little bit more about what Chevron has going on. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. Great day to be out here. Just beautiful weather here in, uh, in Decatur today. It is, absolutely. Let's start off. Let's learn a little bit more about yourself. Where are sure. you from and uh, what's your connection to agriculture? Yeah, so I uh, grew up in uh, western Iowa, southwest Iowa. Uh, grew up on a farm. Persia is the actual closest uh, 
community that we mm -hmm. grew up in. Uh, my parents still farm. Uh, they own about 1,300 acres. My wife and I are active in that uh, farming operation. Uh, went to school in Ames, uh, Iowa State, got an engineering degree, uh, and then I was recruited on campus there uh, to uh, go work for Chevron. So I've been with Chevron for 40 years in different roles across the U.S. and outside of the U.S. 40 and years. 40 years, that's yeah. right. More than you were probably old. That's right. <laughs> so That's right. Uh, but uh, Chevron bought the Renewable Energy Group uh, last June and uh, was asked to be the president of of uh, that uh, cool organization that makes uh, biodiesel and renewable diesel. So you came back to Ames then? Yeah, so uh, living right off Welch Avenue, and so my kids both went to school there, and they're sort of thinking I'm uh, a little strange to be uh, near campus town. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have an apartment there, and then during the weekend I'm uh, uh, in Harlan is where we live, my yep. wife and I now. That's kind of neat. Yes, that would be a lively neighborhood to be a part of. Yes, it is. For anybody that's familiar with Ames itself. So tell us more about the uh, acquisition and how that is currently sitting. How much is, has changed? Yeah, so uh, I often get asked, uh, why is an energy company uh, uh, wanting to get involved in agriculture or a company like Renewable Energy Group? And it really starts with Chevron's uh, view of the future of energy is lower carbon. And uh, we've had that view for uh, quite some time. Uh, you know, how do you progress that view with actions? And one of the actions was the acquisition of the Renewable Energy Group based in Ames. Uh, they have been uh, producing biodiesel uh, for over 20 years, started a soybean oil uh, plant in Ralston, Iowa, and then they have facilities here in Illinois, uh, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Louisiana, and, and uh, sort of in, in Germany. Um, most of those are biodiesel, but we also have a renewable diesel plant in, uh, in Geismar, Louisiana. Uh, that's going through an expansion. It'll be done next year. It's roughly a billion dollars uh, You said a, a billion with a B? A billion with a B, that's right. So it's going to feed uh, you know, the traditional sources of feedstock that we use for both biodiesel and renewable diesel. You know, that'll be soybean oil, canola oil. Uh, used uh, cooking oil, uh, distillers corn oil from an ethanol industry, mm -hmm. uh, and then we also use a lot of animals and fats uh, from slaughterhouses across uh, across the Midwest and outside the U.S. as well, right? So that's the feedstocks that we make uh, to make fuel these days. Wow. I want to dive deeper into that, but first I want to go back to the beginnings of Chevron. How, how old of a company is Chevron? Yeah, so for over 140 years, uh, Chevron's been in existence. It was a originally part of the standard oil company um, that was broken up and it was uh, then um, Standard Oil of California is uh, sort of the, the branch of the Standard Oil Company and then you know eventually we changed our name to Chevron. We uh, operate across the globe uh, producing oil, gas, and then selling obviously uh, fuel in our retail stations largely around the west coast and gulf coast and through the, through the Atlantic states. Nice. So, yes, let's talk about that expansion in Louisiana. It's too bad it's not going to be here in the Midwest, but there's probably a strategic reason behind that expansion. Yeah, and so um, it had started as a uh, renewable diesel plant there in, in Louisiana. It really has good access to feedstocks coming down the Mississippi River. Uh, and so it's right on the river, and so we get a lot of feedstocks uh, coming down the river via barge versus trucks. 
So even though it's located in Louisiana, feedstocks come from all over the Midwest uh, and outside the U.S. as well. Uh, so that was uh, really the reason that it was bought there, uh, built there, the expansion, because we had an existing facility, had some infrastructure, and then uh, we decided to expand there. And now when you're saying feedstocks, for us that might not totally understand what that is, that's the, the material, that's the product that you use to go into the renewable fuel. Yeah, that's the raw materials, that's right, uh, that go in to make the renewable fuels that we make, right? That's right. And one of the things you listed was animal fats. Yep, that's right. So uh, animal fats from slaughterhouses, uh, it's an oil or a lipid, and then it actually, we clean it up, uh, we do a little treatment, and then it goes through uh, either a chemical process in biodiesel or a, a refining process in renewable diesel, and it comes out to be uh, diesel that uh, I run in my semi and I run in my pickup truck. So is this, is this, I'm envisioning, you know, like you're making a batch of cookies and you put in the ingredients and they all get measured into place. It's not necessarily that you need the animal fats and the distiller's grain oil and the soy oil all at a percentage. You can make biodiesel out of each one of them individually? Uh, you can, uh, but the, the quality really matters for particularly biodiesel. And so we're very, very uh, specific on, on what we use and the percentages of feedstocks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, the industry started really with 100% soybean oil, and so that's an easy feedstock to run. The animal fats and greases are harder feedstock, okay. and so you can run 100% of those, but uh, it takes more energy, it takes more processing time, and more chemicals to, to make treatments uh, of those feedstocks. So it really depends on the price of each one of those feedstocks, right. what we're trying to, to achieve. That, that would make sense. To, it's then almost comparative to the feedstuffs that go into livestock, to where you can feed a bunch of different things to a calf, but yeah. there's a most economical way and a yeah. better rate of gain. Yeah, exactly. It's like a ration for, uh, that you might have for your hogs or your cattle. And yeah. uh, when uh, wheat goes uh, too low, you know, that's a preferred uh, uh, source, right? Because it's cheaper and provides yeah. protein just like corn and, and uh, soybean meal and the rest. So it's very similar. Very similar. But that's an interesting, uh, at least that was eye-opening for myself. To real, I didn't realize you can switch feedstocks, yep. and it's an, another way to ensure that Chevron REG is able to produce the lowest cost renewable fuel? Yeah, so, it, you know, there's a couple elements that you're looking at. One is uh, sort of the cost, but in today's environment, a lot of the renewable fuels go and get marketed in, uh, maybe a state like California or Oregon or Washington that has a low carbon fuel standards. Right. Those fuel standards also require or incentivize folks to have a lower carbon intensity. And so that's also part of the equation, the cost of the raw materials going in and then the sort of the value that you get, uh, if you w uh, will, when you sell the products and the incentives are for the lower carbon intensity feedstocks like used cooking oil, right. animal fats is another low carbon intensity feedstock. So now as we look at Chevron becoming a player and partner to a lot of our listeners, a lot in the agricultural community, what is the future for Chevron and farmers? Yeah, and so I think um, this, the challenge that we have to provide lower carbon fuels is, is a large one. It's a complex one. It's going to take 
uh, both ag and energy working together. Uh, and that's not always been the case, uh, but there's no question that one pocket of that value chain can't solve what we're trying to solve for in lower carbon fuels. And so uh, you look at what Chevron is, is doing, is it's partnering uh, with uh, other companies. We've partnered with Bungie as a very large soybean crushing yeah. uh, company here in the, in the U.S. Um, we have two joint venture soybean crushing facilities. One is in Cairo, Illinois. The other one's Desterham, Louisiana. We've also partnered with Bungie. Uh, in Argentina. Uh, there we're using camelina as a feedstock. It's, a, it's a, a cover crop that's very similar if you looked at it uh, compared to canola. We're also partnering with uh, Corteva uh, in the Southern Plains with Bungie, the three of us, to uh, grow winter canola as another right. source of oils for renewable fuels, right? And so you think about the future, it's really how do we get other right. sorts of crops that have oil content, canola, uh, camelina, uh, are ones that we're working uh, directly with uh, our partners, right? That's eye-opening. I'm glad that you shared that. And as as I sit here, one of the headlines that we've reported on quite a bit is the renewable jet fuel. Yep. yep. What's uh, Chevron's step and process in that? Is there a, an avenue that you guys could participate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, um, the facility, I'll go back to the one in Geismar, Louisiana. Today, it produces uh, renewable diesel, renewable propane, renewable naphtha. The naphtha is a refining term that basically if we split that out and clean it up, we can make uh, sustainable aviation fuel oh, from wow. that. Uh, we haven't done that yet, uh, really based on the economics of sustainable aviation fuel versus renewable diesel. And so it's more economic for us to make renewable diesel. But yeah. uh, SAF is uh, certainly, uh, you know, goes into the airline industry. It's going to be hard to have an electric plug-in for uh, airplanes. And so we got to figure out how do we how do we make that sustainable aviation? One way is the way we're using oils and fats and lipids and greases. Another way is alcohol to jet. You hear that from the largely the ethanol industry as well. Uh, ultimately, there will be several pathways that we make sustainable aviation because it's a it's a fuel that or it's a service uh, airlines uh, and flying that you can't you can't electrify, and right. so you're going to have to have a fuel that's made from a renewable source. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us here. I know you're going to have a busy schedule. Probably a lot of people want to ask you questions out here at Farm Progress. But if our listeners want to learn more or follow along with what Chevron Renewable Energy Group is doing, how best do they do that? Yeah, so we have a LinkedIn site, uh, social media, search for Chevron Renewable Energy, search for Chevron. We have lots of uh, information out there. Uh, but uh, great uh, to be able to chat with you today yeah. and be able to tell a little bit about our story. And uh, the future is bright, but it's going to take all of us to get there. That's right. Well, thank you again. Absolutely. With the Farm Smart Podcast, we're not just talking change, we're making change together. Farm Smart is where sustainability meets opportunity. We're helping growers leverage sustainable practices and products to record positive environmental impacts and provide new revenue streams. Tune in to learn more about sustainable ag and the opportunities and incentives that are enabling us to get to the future faster. Get the Farm Smart podcast on your favorite streaming platform or at nutrientagsolutions.com slash farmsmart. 
Well, thanks again there to Tanner and Chevron for sitting down at the Farm Progress Show here. And as a quick reminder, this episode was brought to you by the Farm Smart Podcast. You can subscribe now. Just head on over there after you're done listening to today's Ag News Daily Podcast and subscribe at nutrientagsolutions.com slash farmsmart. With that, we'll let everyone go and see you right back here for one more episode tomorrow. 